and you need some notes for today's class. And we, per what you see on the cover of those notes, we're going to be continuing our series titled, You Mean the Bible Teaches That? And today we're going to be looking at the issue of origins. What does the Bible teach about creation and evolution? Now, I don't know if anybody cares about this, if anybody showed up specifically for the thing that was originally on for today, which was capital punishment. We're doing that next week. Uh, so we got those out of order. I apologize if you came to hear on the topic of capital punishment, but we'll be dealing with that, as I say, next week. All right, if you'll take a look at page one of those notes then, we ask, what does the Bible teach about origins? In 1835, a 26-year-old British naturalist named Charles Darwin visited the Galapagos Islands off the coast of South America. He formulated there a theory to explain the diversity of life he saw in the world. He published On the Origin of Species by Natural Selection in the year 1859, and that work remains the foundation of all modern thought on evolution. His theory made headlines in America in 1925 with the famous or infamous Scopes Monkey Trial in Dayton, Tennessee. Now, what that was, was the state of Tennessee had a law that in the public schools only the story of creation could be taught. And John Scopes began teaching the theory of evolution to defy that law. And... uh, He purposely did that in order to challenge the law in court, and it became a major spectacle nationwide because the American Civil Liberties Union paid for an attorney to defend Scopes. The the attorney that they uh, paid to defend him was a man named Clarence Darrow, and Darrow was a renowned uh, attorney at, at the time. He would have been like a F. Lee Bailey, Johnny Cochran, one of those dream team guys at, at the time. And so he comes down to Tennessee from Chicago to defend uh, Scopes. But to prosecute Scopes uh, was another very famous, well-known person nationwide, and that person was William Jennings Bryan. William Jennings Bryan was from Tennessee, and he had made quite a name for himself in in politics. In fact, he had served as Secretary of State. He had run for president a couple of times. In 1896, he ran for president. He gave a speech at uh, the national convention called the Cross of Gold speech. If you were to Google the Cross of Gold speech... And William Jennings Bryan, it would come up immediately. It's one of the most famous political speeches ever ever given. He was quite an orator, but he was a Bible believer. He believed the Bible. He believed what the Bible uh, said was true. And so uh, Bryan and Darrow going at it was great theater. And so the uh, the trial took place, and media from the north descended upon... Dayton, this little town of Dayton, Tennessee, and the courtroom there, and a real drama played out. Uh, In the northern newspapers, especially uh, a guy named H.L. Mencken, 
H.L. Mencken wrote for the Baltimore Evening Sun, and in the Baltimore Evening Sun, every day of the trial, he was writing about it, and he was just skewering uh, the Bible believers and the uh, citizens of Dayton, Tennessee, and William Jennings Bryan, and making them to look really ignorant and foolish, and, and it apparently succeeded. Uh, and I'll talk about why in a moment. But Scopes was actually convicted. And so in that sense, Jennings won and Darrow lost. But in the larger sense, Darrow won the, the war and the media war because those who believed in creation were presented, as I said, as very backwoods, ignoramuses. And that image has stuck over, uh, the, over the decades. In fact, if you look at footnote number one down at the bottom of page one, the trial was made into a play and later a movie called Inherit the Wind. And Inherit the Wind is a completely unflattering portrayal of the creationists, to put it mildly. For a correction, though, to that distortion, because Inherit the Wind distorted what really did take place there, uh, I refer you to the article that's listed there from the journal First Things. And at the time that the Scopes Monkey trial occurred, those who believed in creation had not bothered to marshal a whole lot of, of scientific evidence to refute evolution. One, because evolution was relatively new. And, uh, uh, and so you didn't have at that time the kinds of organizations that you have today. Today we have organizations like Answers in Genesis, like the Institute for Creation Research, like Creation Ministries International, we had John, Dr. Jonathan Sarfati here uh, last year, you may remember, uh, from Creation Ministries International. But at the time, you didn't have any of those. And now there are a whole plethora of those kinds of organizations. So back to the middle of page one. Today, the evolutionary theory of the origin of the universe seems almost universally accepted, at least if we judge by mainstream media and academia. What does the Bible teach? Does science contradict the Bible? Should we keep religion and science separate? Does it really matter? So let's begin by looking at the nature of the debate. And the nature of the debate really starts with two opposing worldviews. At its heart, the creation-evolution debate involves naturalism versus supernaturalism. Every worldview has a set of basic commitments that limit the explanations that can be given for a particular phenomenon. You see in the box there that a worldview... As the name suggests, it's a way of viewing the world. So it's a way of viewing or interpreting all of reality. It's a framework through which one makes sense of the data of life and the world. So you've got these two polar opposites, naturalism, supernaturalism. And both of those, depending on the one you're committed to, will affect what uh, evidence uh, you uh, allow, uh, in particular, how you'll interpret the evidence that you look at. So let's start with naturalism. Naturalism is a view that the universe of matter and energy is all that there really is. And therefore, naturalism denies the existence of God. In the study of the origins of the universe, naturalism assumes that everything in the world arose through natural processes or natural causes. So let me just stop, stop there. And try to show how one's commitment, pre-commitment to their worldview 
will affect how they look at the evidence. Your worldview, because it is the lens through which you look at everything, will then affect how you interpret an artifact or a phenomenon. You're going to look through the lenses of your chosen worldview, naturalism or supernaturalism. And so here's a, here's an example. If naturalism is what's said at the bottom of page one, and it is, and that is that everything in the world arose through natural processes and natural causes, then one of the assumptions that you're going to have to bring to the evidence if you're a naturalist is this. It's a long word, but it's uniformitarianism. Uniformitarianism. And the root of uniformitarianism is uniform. That is, consistent. So, if you take a naturalistic worldview and you bring that to the evidence, you're going to look at that evidence. You're going to look at a fossil. You're going to look at a geologic column. You're going to look at the evidence, but you're going to interpret it through this grid of natural processes uniformly, consistently producing what we see today. There's no intervention. There can't be inter, any inter intervention um, because there's no one to intervene. Supernaturalism is ruled out. It can only be by natural causes and processes. So you're going to look at then the evidence, but you're going to look at the evidence through this assumption of uniformitarianism. Now, let's uh, talk a little bit about how that plays itself out practically. As a naturalist, with the assumption of uniformitarianism, looking at a fossil, for example, they're going to look at that fossil and they're going to assume that that fossil was produced through natural causes, natural processes, over a long period of time. And they want to date how long that was. They're going to use, as we'll see in pages to come, uh, the most common dating method of radioactive carbon-14 and the decay of, of radioactive carbon-14. Now, they're going to look at the uh, amount of carbon-14 in that fossil, and then they're going to extrapolate backwards using the current rate of decay. And they're going to assume that the current rate of decay has always been the rate of decay. Why? Because it's uniform. Because this has been a natural process that's been going on. There's no one to intervene from the outside. That would be the supernatural uh, worldview. And so as a result of that, they're able to extrapolate backwards and then calculate how old this, this fossil is. It's one of the reasons you get these wildly different estimates as to how old some of these things are. It's because of the assumptions that the scientists bring to the same bone. They're looking at the same fossil, but they're bringing different assumptions to it. And just as an aside, some of these dating methods or some of these calculations that have been used by naturalists using the uniformitarian assumption have been shown to be just completely off. I mean, some of the fossils that they've dated to be millions and millions of years old have actually happened in just the last hundred years, few hundred years. 
So they're sometimes wildly off because they're making an assumption that can't be proven, namely that the rate of decay of radioactive carbon-14 has remained constant all the way going back. But they make that assumption not because it can be proven, but because that's the worldview they bring to the task, a naturalistic worldview and the uniformitarian assumption that goes, that goes with it. Now, let's just use an illustration going the other way. Uniformitarianism uh, and the uniformitarian assumption going backwards in dating methods is one example. But another example is going forward in trying to estimate something like population growth. Population growth. Have you ever been in a class, in a mathematics class perhaps, and they're having you figure out what the population of the world is going to be in 30 years and if you were doing that, what you would do is you would look at the current rate of population growth, and then you would see what the current population of the world is, and then you would calculate 30 years from now, and this is what we're going to have. As a result of that, it's, it's, it's this astronomical number of people. And so people wig out because there's not going to be enough food. And so you get, going back into the 70s when I was growing up, movies like Soylent Green. Anybody were Remember that? Okay. We're all going to have to invent all this, you know, synthesized food and synthetic food and all of that because there just won't be enough to go around because this is how. I mean, going back 150 years ago, there was a guy named Thomas Malthus. Thomas Malthus and and the Malthusian theory of population growth did exactly what I'm saying 150 years ago. According to Malthus, we wouldn't be here right now given his calculations. We wouldn't be here. He, he, he predicted that at the current rate of growth, there would be too many people, not enough food, all the, all the stuff. Now, notice, though, that doing it that way is a uniformitarian approach. You're assuming that the rate of population growth is going to be uniform. It's going to be constant going forward. But, of course, it's not constant. Um, thus, we're here. Now, what makes it not constant? Stuff happens from the outside. What kinds of things happen? World wars? <laughs> a couple of them. That affects population growth. Famine, disease, all kinds of things affect population growth. So the good news is, 30 years from now, if the Lord doesn't return, there'll be enough food. The bad news is, there'll be enough food because there'll be famines <laughs> and there'll be wars and, and all of that. But the larger point here is, that the uniformitarian assumption goes both ways. Backwards in dating methods, forward in population growth. And the Bible has something to say about this uniformitarian approach. If you care to jot down Second Peter, Second Peter chapter three, Second Peter chapter three, Second Peter chapter three and verses three through nine. Second Peter chapter three, three through nine. And in that passage, Peter, who wrote it, says, Some will say, where is this coming that he, that is Jesus, promised? And in that passage, it's they are saying, these scoffers, that's what Peter calls them, scoffers. Where is this coming that he promised? And they say, all things proceed as they have from the beginning. In other words, he said he's going to come back and he's going to enter our existence 
again. But where is he? Because all things just continue to go on as they have. He hasn't intervened. And we don't think he is going to intervene. And then Peter says this, but they deliberately forget. And then you know what he says they deliberately forget? That God has intervened in the past, which is a down payment on the fact that he's going to intervene in the future. And the particular intervention that Peter cites is the worldwide flood of Noah. They deliberately forget that God deluged the world with a worldwide flood in the past. The reason God has not then come back, Christ has not come back as yet, is not because he's not going to fulfill his promise. In fact, Peter says the Lord is not slack concerning his promise. He's going to keep his promise. But famously in verse number 9, it's because God is patient with you. And he is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. God is giving time. God is giving time for people to come to him before, in fact, he does do what he has done in the past through things like the flood. Now, what Peter is saying is your uniformitarian assumption doesn't hold. It didn't hold in the past. It won't hold in the future. Think about now the dating methods and think about the flood. If the dating method is based upon the idea that there's been a uniform rate of decay, then what kinds of things might drastically affect that? Well, a worldwide flood would be one. And the Bible teaches that such a thing actually happens. So the flood disrupts the whole uniformitarian assumption. But the key point for us to understand is that that assumption is indeed underlying the naturalist approach toward the toward the evidence. So bottom of page one. For them, the world is not the result of rational processes and intent, but is random. Evolution as a theory, page 2, has a pre-commitment to naturalism. For instance, Richard Dawkins, a revered evolutionary philosopher, betrays his commitment to naturalism when he says, Biology is the study of complicated things that give the appearance of having been designed for a purpose. Now, notice the title of his book, The Blind Watchmaker. <laughs> and, and if you know anything about him, you know anything about his, his work, he doesn't believe that there is actually an intelligent watchmaker that did any of this. He doesn't believe any of that. But he has to say right at the beginning, when we study biology, we're looking at complicated things that give the appearance of actually having been designed for a purpose. Now, why would he acknowledge that these things will be universally recognized as having the appearance of design and yet suggest that they could not actually be so? Why? Because he has a pre-commitment. They can't be because of his worldview. Similarly, Francis Crick writes, biologists must constantly keep in mind that what they see was not designed, but rather evolved. Now, why do they have to constantly keep that in mind? <laughs> because what they're seeing actually looks like it was designed. But that would be contrary to the worldview that we're bringing. And so you have to regularly remind yourself that that can't be the case. Don't allow your lens, your naturalistic lens, to be tainted by what appears to be designed. When it looks like it's being designed, you know, take the glasses off, <laughs> wipe them off, and get back into your naturalistic mindset, is what he's saying. 
These statements betray the fact that evolution is necessitated by philosophical naturalism. While this view is essentially atheistic in its approach to science, the foundation of this worldview is, without question, philosophical and religious. It is a statement of faith. So just, I throw that out there for your consideration, but you notice that throughout here I have the word naturalism with a capital N. I do that on purpose because it really is uh, very much a religious commitment. You make a pre-commitment to that. This is what I believe. Did you know you can have a religious commitment without God? I mean, people do it all the time. Uh, Atheists are very religious people. In that, they base their lives and they base their theories on things that they cannot prove, that they take on faith. And so they take uniformitarianism on faith. You can't prove that. They take these things on faith, and when they see something that is contrary to that faith, they have to adjust the lens so that they can see it through the lens of that faith. So therefore, as a policy matter, I'll just touch on this and then move on. But as a policy matter, when we say that science that that uh, supports creationism cannot be taught in schools because it's religious, I would just suggest to you we're already teaching religion in the form of naturalism to our children in the schools. And there's a faith commitment that must be made in order to see things through the lens of naturalism. All right, then there's supernaturalism. Middle of page two, the second worldview is supernaturalism. It's founded on the assumption that the material world is not all there is, all that can be known, and therefore explanations need not be limited to natural phenomena. Like naturalism, this assumption is something that cannot be proved. It's a starting point, and it defines what kinds of questions, the kinds of questions that may be asked in research. The foundation of this worldview is also philosophical with religious implications. So you compare them. Here are the similarities. They're both essentially philosophical. They both begin with an unprovable assumption, the existence and intervention of God or the non-existence, non-intervention of God. They're both based on faith. They both provide a foundation for how we view the evidence we see in the world. The major difference is one admits only naturalistic explanations. The other acknowledges at least the possibility that God has and does intervene in the universe. From this, then, we can recognize that the debate about origins of the universe is not about evidence. Both the creationist and the evolutionist, and everyone in between, use the same evidence. It's rather about one's interpretation of the evidence. Conclusions differ due to the chosen starting point. When one begins with naturalism, he cannot conclude that God created the universe. He has, at the beginning, ruled out at least one option as legitimate because it conflicts with his pre-commitment to philosophical naturalism. All right. So that's the nature of the debate. You come to it with your worldview. That worldview has pre-commitments that have assumptions built into them. One example of that is the uniformitarian assumption, top of page 3. We need to understand the difference between microevolution and macroevolution. So let me let me just explain it. Macroevolution, macro meaning large, is what most of us know as the theory of evolution. Amoeba to man kind of idea. That's macroevolution. Microevolution is small changes that you can observe in a laboratory when 
certain conditions exist or are changed, then you'll observe changes to uh, whatever's under study. For example, when you were in science class when you were a kid, uh, you may have had what I had, which was, I actually had this in college too, but uh, they would use the fruit fly as examples. So the fruit fly was an example of uh, in a laboratory, you could show that under different environmental conditions, different mutations, changes happen to that fruit fly. And so the and so the experiments would be take this fruit fly and bombard this fruit fly with radiation. And what would happen is when you bombard this fruit fly with radiation, here's what you get. You get a really weird looking fruit fly. It like grows another head, grows some extra wing. It just, it's all deformed. Now those are changes. Those are micro, those are small changes. Everybody can watch those, everybody can see those. Nobody disagrees with that that actually happens. That kind of micro so-called evolution. But here's the important thing. See, if you're going to believe the macro evolution theory, You don't need to just prove that under certain conditions, changes in a particular species or insect will occur. You've got to show somehow that they change from one to another, to a different one. See, when you bombard that fruit fly with radiation, guess what you get? More fruit fly. You don't get a fruit fly into something else. You just get a really weird looking fruit fly. But it stays a fruit fly. All the stuff that's now and all the appendages coming off of it are all fruit fly stuff. Not other stuff. And this has been kind of the dirty secret of evolution for all of these years. And that is, in your biology textbook, when you see those schematics of bones that are a dinosaur, for example... That, in fact, if you look at that whole thing that they put in a museum, that they put a schematic of in the the book, the number of bones that they've actually found for that is often as low as 1% of the bones in that whole thing. And they've developed a schematic now based upon assumptions as to what it would look like if, in fact, this process took place. Why? Why? Because you can't actually find what are called the missing what? The missing links that show this progression, this evolution from one to another. Can't find it. Hasn't been found. And I would suggest to you never is going to be found. But to this point has has not been found. So microevolution versus macroevolution. This is a second foundational issue in the origins of debate, and that's the distinction between so-called small evolution and large evolution. The commonly used term evolution refers to macro, sees the process of natural selection as the explanation of the evolution from one species to another. It's how a single cell ultimately became man. Microevolution is the kind of evolution that occurs within a species. We see an example of this in viruses that mutate and become resistant to a particular drug treatment. Darwin's theory is macro in that it sees the process of natural selection as the explanation for the evolution of one species to another. 
And yet one can, as creationists do, recognize micro without accepting macro as the explanation for the world that we see. For instance, it's true that the slight mutations, changes take place, with notice, within their kind if insects and animals are exposed to different environments. And so I just want, when somebody asks me, do you believe in evolution, I usually say, which type are you talking about? If you believe, talking about macroevolution, the answer is no. Talking about microevolution, what I can see in a laboratory, sure, of course, but that doesn't help you at all. And the reason it doesn't help the evolutionary cause is because of what we say in the middle of page three the difference between operation science and forensic science. So if you're going to get your mind around this whole idea, we're, try- we're giving you a handful of things that hopefully will clarify matters. The first one is understand that it's ultimately a matter of your worldview, naturalistic worldview versus a supernaturalistic worldview. That's first. Secondly, there are two kinds of evolution, micro and macro. And then thirdly, there are two kinds of science. There is operation science and there is forensic or origin science. In some ways, this debate is also a debate about the nature of science. The American Journal of Physical Anthropology recommends the following strategy. In any confrontation, you should be prepared to show that evolution is scientific, not that it is correct. Let me just stop and let that sink in for a moment. Because what, what they're saying is, is that the reason we know we're right is because what we're doing is science and what they're doing is religion. That's what it's saying. So be prepared to show that evolution is scientific, not that it's correct. One need not discuss fossils, intermediate forms, or probabilities of mutation. These are incidental. Let me just say, that would come in very handy if you're an evolutionist, not to discuss any of those things, because that evidence is not on your side if you don't make the naturalistic assumption. The question is, what is science and what is religion? Therefore, if you must confront the creationists, we suggest you discuss the nature of science, the kind of knowledge it can provide and the kind it cannot provide. This approach does not do justice to the necessary distinction between origin science and operation science. And so what what is that? Here's the difference. When you and just and me and just about everybody else thinks of science, here's what we think of. We think of operation science. This is what you were taught when you were in school, when you were taught the scientific method. Anybody remember that? And the scientific method has multiple steps to it. You observe a phenomenon and you test uh, a phenomenon and you repeat the phenomenon and you develop a hypothesis about what happens and you test over and over and then ultimately if the tests continue to pass then you could you could come up with a scientific law out of that that's the scientific method that you observe that you that you uh, test that you hypothesize that you're able to repeat these tests that's operation you're looking at how things operate how they work And that's what most of us think of when we think of science. And it makes sense to me. You're in a laboratory. You're able to, you know, put something under a microscope or whatever. You're able to see how it operates at the present time. That's operation science. Origin science isn't like that. From the very beginning, 
origin science, that is where we came from, how life came to be, fails the scientific method on the very first step. What was that very first step again? You observe. Who was there to observe? Nobody. Well, now you're not watching something then that's taking place in the present. You're now having to look at what takes place in the present and extrapolate back with regard to what happened in the past. That's a different kind of science. It's called forensic science. It's legitimate. It's completely legitimate. But it's different. So you know who does forensic science? That's a medical examiner. That is, um, I'm showing my age yet again, when I, uh, when I bring up Carl Malden and Quincy. Do you guys remember a show named Quincy? But there was a more recent medical examiner show, wasn't there? What? What is it? CSI? Okay. That's not even the one. I was thinking of an older one than that. <laughs> okay, CSI. But a medical examiner takes, sorry to be gross, but, you know, somebody gets, there's a murder. Body goes to the Wayne County medical examiner. And the medical examiner is trying to look at what happened. Now, the medical examiner didn't observe what happened. They're looking now at an artifact, and they're trying to, based upon if it was a gunshot, the entry wound, and the exit wound, they're trying to determine how far the person was away, what kind of weapon they used, all of that. So they're looking at something in the present, but the event actually actually happened in the past. And they're trying to extrapolate back as to what happened in the past. That's a different kind of science. It's legitimately science, but it's not operation science. It's not the scientific method. And it, of necessity, requires some guesses. Look at the bottom of page three and the little gray box. Forensic science observes effects and guesses at the process. So if somebody says, look, you're not scientific, don't, don't give me that. I'm, I very much believe in the scientific method. I very much believe in operation science and I believe in forensic science. I just also understand the limitations of forensic science. And that's what you should say to anyone who tells you that you're not being scientific if you are a creationist. Now, what does the scripture say about all of this? Page four, one of the most commonly heard arguments in this debate is that you cannot mix religion and science. We're told religion has no place in the science classroom. Science has no place in religious studies. But as we've seen above, it's impossible to completely separate them, particularly in the realm of origins, because there was no one there to observe it. Whichever view you take, it's ultimately a religious view based on faith. The theory of evolution hangs on the non-existent missing links. This theory has arisen out of naturalism to explain the origin and existence of the universe without appealing to a God they cannot see and do not believe in. The Bible tells us that God created the universe. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Genesis, the book of beginnings, describes for us the creation of the universe from nothing until it was complete. It tells us it was done in days that are marked by night and day, meaning they were our normal solar days of 24 hours. Let me stop there. So sometimes Christians now who are trying to harmonize what they're being taught at school with what they believe in the Bible, they will come up with theories uh, for that. And there are a number of them. I mean, one is the, uh, the gap theory. Anybody ever heard of the gap theory? 
The gap theory is the idea that between Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1 and verse 2, there's a gap of indeterminate time. So that would allow, if it were true, for all the millions and billions of years that the scientific community says we must account for. So in the beginning, verse 1, God created the heavens and the earth. And then verse 2 says, and the earth was without form and void. The gap theory says there's a gap of indeterminate time between those two things. And so God could have created the heavens and the earth, but then later he gets to verse 2 and he starts doing all the stuff you read there and ultimately creates man. So there's all kinds of stuff going on for millions of years, say the, the gap theorists. The problem with that is a couple of things. One, the Hebrew grammar won't allow you to do that. It won't allow you to make this gap between verse 1 and verse 2. Just take my word for that. But more straightforwardly, the Bible won't let you do it. This morning, if you were here in our first hour, I actually quoted, uh, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And I mentioned that the heavens and the earth is something called a merism, which means in the beginning, God created everything. So God created it all at the same time. And then chapter 1 gives us these six days in which he did all of that. But further and more, even I think even more clearly, is, uh, is Exodus chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20, verses 8 through 11. Exodus chapter 20, verses 8 through 11. And Exodus chapter 20 is giving the Ten Commandments. When it comes to the Fourth Commandment, you're to remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Then it goes and it says this, For in six days... The Lord created, and then it goes on and gives a list of like everything and all that is in them. And then on the seventh day, he ceased his his work. He rested. This is why you keep the Sabbath day. And so the Bible will not allow for the gap theory, but it's an attempt by people who believe the Bible to try to harmonize it with science. Another attempt is something called the day-age theory. So that each of those six days in Genesis chapter 1 are not actual 24-hour days, but they are actually long ages. Well, that won't fly either. One, Exodus chapter 20, verses 8 through 11, says based on this six-day creation week, there's to be a seventh day of rest. How long does the seventh day of rest last? How long is that seventh day? 24 hours. So if you've got the six days as ages, and on the seventh day you rest, I mean, I would be in favor of that, actually. It just means I get to rest all the time, you know, for eons. But it simply won't work. Further, we've already mentioned that in the Genesis account, in Genesis chapter 1, it mentions in the evening and the morning were the first day, and the evening and the morning were the second day. When it says first day, second day, third day, The Hebrew word for day is yom, like in Yom Kippur, the day of atonement. The first yom, second yom. Whenever in your Bible the word day, yom, is used with a, with first or second, it always refers, always refers to a 24 hour day. So for all of those reasons, you simply cannot harmonize The idea that the earth is millions of years old and the universe is billions of years old 
with what the Bible with what the Bible teaches. Now, let me give you a theological reason you can't do that either. A theological reason is this. The Bible teaches that the big problem for humanity is sin. And the Bible states very clearly that death came into the world as a result of sin. If there had not been the first sin, there would be no death. But in all of these other theories, the day-age theory, um, all of those in, in evolution of any type, you have millions of years of death happening before the first man and woman could ever commit the first sin. And so Jesus is the solution to sin and the death that results from that sin. But evolution reverses that and says that that death was not caused by sin. And so Jesus' solution to sin then presumably would would not be the would would not be the remedy. All right. Middle of page 4 then you've got evidence for a young earth created by God and on the following pages we answer the question if you look at the top of page 5 about dinosaurs aren't dinosaurs millions of of years old i mean you know where if if god really wrote the bible and god really is the creator and the bible starts within the beginning then you would think if there were dinosaurs god would mention it somewhere well it turns out he does and many people don't know that but he does and i have it for you on page 5 but in Job chapter 41, and Job may well be the oldest book in the Bible, older than even Genesis. Um, and Job uh, writes of uh, Leviathan. And if you go into Job chapter 41 and you look at the description of this beast called Leviathan, it looks very much like Jurassic Park and 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 dinosaurs. And so dinosaurs did exist. Dinosaurs went onto the ark. Now, all you needed were small dinosaurs. You needed pairs so that they could then replicate, but that's exactly that's exactly what happened. So the Bible does mention and acknowledge dinosaurs. They did go extinct. There's a whole explanation for why that happened, but they did exist and they existed at the same time humans did. The dating methods and radioactive dating, we've already talked about uh, that a bit. If you look on page 6, what about the layers of fossils? Like at the Grand Canyon, don't they prove an old earth? For years, scientists have insisted that the layers of rock we find in places like the Grand Canyon could only be formed over eons of time by the slow process of erosion. Creationists are ridiculed for suggesting that a global flood could produce the same results in a matter of days or years. But in 1980, Mount St. Helens erupted and rapidly produced up to 600 feet thickness of strata. What geologists were saying would take thousands of years occurred while scientists watched. (laughs) It only took about 11 years to produce results that we had not witnessed the event, that had we not witnessed the event, would have been judged to have taken ages. You've got the intelligent design movement, but then finally I just want to look at the conclusion, and then I've got some announcements. Does the Bible contradict science? No. So long as we properly understand what the Bible says and understand the limitations of science. To put it simply, science is ill-equipped to comment authoritatively on how the universe came into being. Remember the earlier discussion on operation and origin. Origin science is forensic in nature. It observes effects and guesses at causes. It looks at what is now and tries to figure out what was then. It does not fit the general definition of science that's tied to observation, prediction, testing, and repetition. 
Evolutionary theory is also ill-equipped because it's saddled with its pre-commitments to naturalism and atheism. Look at atheism. Look at uh, the bottom paragraph. It also suffers from incompleteness. It's forced to fill in pieces in order to explain the evidence. In order to explain how an animal got from point A to point B, it has to invent points B through X because they are not extant. That word extant means existing and known. I mean, I'm not saying they don't exist. I'm just saying nobody's found them. And you would think we would be tripping over them. Literally, we would be tripping over them if you had that as much time as the evolutionists tell us that we have. Page 7. There are alternatives to the evolutionary theory. If the account given in the book of Genesis and repeated throughout Scripture is true, we would expect to see exactly what we do see. There's nothing in the universe that's contrary to the biblical account of Scripture. All right. I want to make some announcements. Next week we will look at the issue of capital punishment. Uh, One, in our first hour today, when I made the announcements, I failed to mention that in your program that you should have received on the way in, there are two graduation open houses this Saturday, so please make note of that. There are two of them, two of our young people graduating. Let's try to support them in that. And then also, uh, tomorrow is our uh, Memorial Day picnic at noon here on the back side of the building. Now, we always set up tents for that, and so men... If you can hang around, any of you are willing to hang around and help set up the tents now, that would be great. And I'm told by the person who's organizing that that I need to send any men who are willing to do it as soon as I pray and we're done, then you should go to the back of the building where they're setting up the tents. The reason we need you to do that quickly is because uh, we're told it's going to rain by 1 o'clock. So so uh, get, we want to get back there and get them set up. And if we get enough guys, those can get set up in, uh, I'm told, 15 to, tw- to 20 minutes. So please do that, men, if you can help with that. Tomorrow for the picnic, uh, bring lawn chairs uh, to, to sit in. And also, if you have not signed up for your food, we're having a food truck come, then we're asking you to do that today. And we have set up in the resource center uh, or in the lobby, we have a kiosk where you can do that. You can pay with a card. If you don't want to pay with a card, if you've got check or cash in our resource center, out the back door, across the hallway, the folks there are going to stay a prolonged period to take cash and check for tomorrow's um, for tomorrow's event. Okay? All right. On the back cover of your notes, there's a bunch more uh, announcements of things that are coming up. Let's pray. We'll be dismissed. Father, thank you for the opportunity to take this time and to consider what you say in your word about how all things came to be. Uh, We believe that you are the uncaused uh, cause. You are the, the God who was here in the beginning. And your word simply tells us in the beginning, God. And everyone, everyone, not just Christians, but all people, have to posit that there was someone or something in the beginning that they cannot explain. And so, Lord, we believe uh, that one is you. We believe that you made us by nature to know you and to make that assumption and to hear your voice. And so you tell us in Romans chapter 1 that all people are without excuse when they suppress the truth that you have given to every person. And so, Lord, your word begins with you and your creation And we believe it. And we thank you for giving us that word that explains to us who you are, why you created, why we are here, what our problem is, and the grand solution that you have given to it in the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, help us to be people then that are committed to that truth from beginning to end. 
And help us to see that if we deny any of those truths at the beginning of your word, it affects all the things that you have built on it as redemptive history has proceeded. And so, Lord, if we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and we believe he's the solution to our sin and the death that came by that sin, then we are obligated to believe what you say about how that sin occurred and and the results of it. So help us to be wise in our interpretation and and courageous in our commitments. And, Lord, help us to grasp these things so that we can talk to others and so that we can show them that, indeed, your word is truth. And it's consistent with science properly understood. We ask you to go with us this week now. Grant us safety and bring us back together next Lord's Day. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.